And I always tell them, don't seek out a place to get promoted or, or don't seek out a job that's going to get you promoted, but seek out an opportunity where you find yourself where you can grow, an opportunity where you can make a difference in somebody else's life, and a place where you can make the organization better. I think if you do that, then the rest kind of falls into place. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Retired Chief Master Sergeant Steve Cum has over 30 years of active duty service in the Air Force. During this period, he has served in all levels of healthcare as a frontline medic, independent duty medical technician, paramedic, special operations medic, and executive leadership in overseas and stateside assignments. In this episode, you'll learn how Air Force medics are trained and remain ready to handle the challenges of current and future battlefield scenarios. Steve shares many lessons learned and valuable leadership advice from his distinguished career in special operations and at the top strategic echelons of military medicine. You can find out more about Steve and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Steve Cumb to Wardox. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's truly really an honor. I'm excited to take part in this program. So we'd like to start off by asking you, what is your story of joining the Air Force? story is kind of interesting. It actually kind of goes back to when I was a junior in high school. I had some of my friends said, hey, we're getting out of, out of class to take a test, take an ASVAB test. I had no idea what the ASVAB test was, but what, let's get out of class as a junior in high school. Why not? So I went and took the test. And then after that, I had a few recruiters start calling me. I really wasn't thinking about the, the service, but I did have two god brothers uh, that were in the Air Force that, that I kind of piqued my interest. Didn't have a lot of money to go to school afterwards, after high school. So it seemed like after a while, the, the logical thing for me to do was to, to join the Air Force and, and leave the small town that I was from in, in California. There wasn't much to do there. A lot of people just kind of worked on base and, and did a few things, but it was really just kind of getting out of class. But then there was an opportunity to, to leave the town and, and see the world and do something different. My mother never served in, in the military. I'm the first one in my direct family other than my God brothers to serve in the Air Force or the service as a whole. How did you wind up getting into the medical field in the Air Force? So it's interesting because I actually came in open general, which, which is kind of risky because you can be stuck doing anything. When I was in basic training, I remember going to a course, not a course, but a, a period where you get to pick the jobs that, that you want. And my wife was a, or at the time, my fiance, who turned out to be my wife, she was a dental assistant. So I was like, let's put down dental. I think we could do that. And that way we'll have something to talk about. And I didn't get dental, but I got the aeromedical specialist. Uh, it seemed pretty cool the way the description was, working in flight medicine and physical exams. So after I graduated basic training in 1990, uh, they shipped me off to, to Brooks Air Force Base. Now, after I graduated basic training down in Lackland, it was interesting because I saw all my buddies getting cassette players and radios and everything because they had a long trip to, to get to their next duty station or their next tech school. So I did the same thing, not knowing that my tech school was literally a 25-minute drive to Brooks Air Force Race right, right across the way. So 
That wasn't the longest trip, but uh, how I kind of got into the medical field for the Air Force. How has that training for medics or aeromedical technician, how has that changed from when you did it early in the 90s to what they're doing now? So it's, it's changed, I would say considerably. The actual AFSC or the job specialty that I had has kind of gone away. It, it merged into another AFSC or another job specialty. At that time, when I was in tech school, that job didn't have a requirement to, to be a nationally registered EMT. But now you have to test out and, and pass as EMT before you can even graduate to tech school. And there's a lot more clinical skills that are involved in that program now versus when I went through, I worked more in the flight medicine and physical exams and did a lot more administrative work, medical waivers for flyers. Uh, but we also ran the flight medicine clinic, so we had to be knowledgeable and trained on how to respond to in-flight emergencies and deal with different types of hypoxia issues. But the general clinical medicine, inpatient medicine, was, wasn't really something that was taught in, in my tech school at that time back in 1990. Uh, but all that's been combined, and it's all kind of really taught now to the medics that come out. I, I think the medics that come out now are much more well-rounded uh, medics that can take care of inpatient as well as outpatient type of, of patient care. So you then spent your time as an air medical specialist. Did you feel prepared for that job? And tell us about that first assignment that you had with the 67th Medical Group. I wouldn't say that I did feel prepared just because I didn't know what I was really getting into. When I first arrived at the 67th Medical Group at the Bergstrom Air Force Base in Austin, Texas, it was, it was eye-opening. I actually worked in a, a small building that was across the street from the main hospital, and it was physical exam section where I worked. Uh, a lot of administrative work, a lot of uh, examinations that I had to learn and be proficient in. But then they rotated me over to flight medicine, which was the building next door. And I really got into doing what, what I learned to love is that was that clinical medicine, was that hands-on medicine, being able to interact with patients. There was a lot of on-the-job training, a lot, a lot of learning. I had some great mentors that showed me the way and, and gave me opportunities to, to be successful during that time period. But I would say I got a good base knowledge coming out of my technical school, but I gained a lot of knowledge as well as confidence doing hands-on training and interacting various exercises on the base. It's at that time, actually, where uh, I went out and on my own and procured my National Register EMT. It wasn't a requirement, but a few of us in the office wanted to go ahead and do that. And there were some night classes that we took to, to obtain that certification. So later in the 90s, you completed independent duty technician course and you did at Shepherd Air Force Base. Tell us a little bit about that school and the training involved and, and what that prepared you to actually do after you finished the training. What does that mean to be an independent duty technician? So that school was pretty challenging for me. And that, in a nutshell, that school is about a three-month course that used to be at Shepherd Air Force Base, but now it's administered down in Metsy, down in San Antonio. And that course really is almost a, like a crash, crash course in, in how to be a PA. In, in PA medicine, it, it's really a, a one-person course on how to be the entire med group. Uh, there's, there's courses on uh, clinical care, on physical examinations, on documentation. They talk about prescriptions, about prescribing narcotics, antibiotics, over-the-counter type medications. It talks about water testing, public health, food, sanitation, bioenvironmental, trapping of flies, medical supply, medical administration patient movement, it, it's really a, a one-man clinical show is, is what that course entails. And it had a high washout rate years ago, but in the course curriculum, the writers, they, 
they made some changes and put some prerequisites in there that made it a little bit better for individuals. Courses were not big. They were probably about 15, 12 to 15 uh, in each, each class. It was broken up in different phases. And the final phase, you're actually in clinic with the PA, seeing patients, reporting out to the PA, doing your soap notes, and actually taking care of, of patients that were coming in to, to be seen. And really the role of the IDMT or the independent duty medical technician is, is to be just out on their own. They have them in different sites in Europe and, and in Asia where they're the only medical provider for that, that team or that group or that unit. And it, it's an opportunity that a lot of people really sometimes shy away from because it's a little scary at first. I'm not going to lie. When I, when I started it, I wasn't sure what I was getting into. Uh, but once you start building that confidence with your preceptors and, and different physicians that you work with, it works out for you pretty well. So after that training, you did some assignments within the special operations community. Can you tell us about what you were doing and, and what your skills as an independent duty medical technician helped you do for that special mission? As an independent duty medical technician and special operations, that's really just part of the training. There's, there's additional training that goes on. Uh, but we, we actually deployed a lot, did a lot of training, worked with our Army and Navy counterparts. We did a lot of exercises, a lot of exercises. We did joint readiness exercises. We did multilateral exercises, bilateral exercises. And really as an IDMT, we would run, run clinics during the day and at night with the other skills that we obtained in special operations, we would run missions, do different operations, do different practices with our counterparts. We'd have different uh, flight paths and flying airframes that we would fly on. And really it was an opportunity to provide care kind of during the day and provide, and provide support and training at night when we did our missions. So during that time, you actually attended several schools in 2000 in the pre-9-11 era, the Medical Readiness Planners course, the Air Medical Evacuation course, the Special Operations Medical Skills Sustainment course, and the Paramedic School. What brought about that barrage of schooling? Did those prepare you for a particular assignment or mission that you were going to go on? So when I first went to special operations in January of 1998, all those schools to include the independent duty medical technician school were requirements to be certified as a special operations command medic, or as what they referred to as a soft me. And that was really just to kind of be on par with our joint counterparts, to have that critical care knowledge, to have the, the clinical knowledge, to have the trauma knowledge. A lot of the schools that we went to, for example, our paramedic school is we had about four or five of us Air Force medics in there. I had some Navy SEALs in there, I had some 18 Deltas in there. All the courses were really special forces, special operations type medical courses that, that we went to. And really all that did prepare me and, and the rest of, I think, the team that, that I worked with for what was to come uh, later in the future. So tell us a, a story or two about the pre-9-11 deployments with the special operations community as an independent duty technician. So it was, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. We really traveled around the world. I would say some of the most interesting places we've been to would be the Middle East, obviously, for different joint range exercises and bilateral exercises. A perfect example would be when we went to Jordan and we would train with their special forces, run clinic and meet with their clinical administrators and talk about different types of clinical care, do some exchange training while we were there. And then also I would support some of the survival exercises that we'd have out in the middle of the field out in uh, Far East Jordan. We'd go out for a couple of days and they'd do survival training and I'd kind of be the medic to provide coverage. And if anybody got sick or hurt, we, I, I would take care of them. But I was also run scenarios and different medical exercises 
uh, for them while they were out there. I did the same in Hungary. That was interesting as well. I'm actually first generation born in the States, a Hungarian by native, native language. So I went as a translator as well as a medic uh, on that trip. So there's a lot of collaboration, a, a lot of medical coverages, a lot of clinic, a lot of training, a lot of planning, a lot of execution, flying on different airframes, moving patients with different nations, as well as doing a lot of that at home. It, it seemed like every, every month we were going somewhere to do some type of exercise or an operation with either a foreign group uh, or a, a local group. Did you have any real-world patient experiences where training accidents or, or things that you were called on to use your skills? Uh, yes, sir. We, uh, that was pretty frequent, especially covering a lot of the jumps. We always, always had some, some definite injuries with jumps, head injuries, fractured femurs, fractured pelvises. Those are pretty common. Those were actually the most common as you know, the, the jumpers would go and we would come in behind them. We kind of pick some of them up and actually take them back to, to local facilities. Uh, and it was all part of the planning process that we did as well, too, for all these missions and trips, whether it's a stateside mission or an overseas mission. The planning was pretty detail oriented in case if somebody did get hurt on what we're going to do, where we're going to take them, are they a U.S. approved facility if it's overseas, working with the embassy and the State Department or the trauma center and the levels of the trauma center in the local stateside for those evacuations as well. So 9-11 sounds like it significantly changed your world as it did most of the rest of us. Tell us specifically your 9-11 story and how did it change your career trajectory? It considerably changed my career trajectory. I remember vividly the morning of September 11th, I was at the 6th Special Operation Squadron getting ready to do a pre-beat for another mission to go to Jordan for an exercise called Early Victor. And as I'm standing at the ops desk, I, I could see the, the hole in the first tower where the first plane went through. And, and then I see the second plane actually flying into the tower. Uh, needless to say, we, we didn't have our, our final ops brief. And I think a lot of us knew we weren't going to Jordan for one or definitely weren't taking part in that exercise. A couple of days later, we were already activated and, and started packing and getting our gear ready and, and getting together for our deployment. We were basically taking everybody. We were cleaning the entire shop out. All the medics, all the docs, all the PAs were getting ready to leave. We actually took for the first time an Air Force mobile field surgical team and an Air Force critical care air evacuation team with us far forward as we deployed. It was interesting because I think that's really the, the birth of what's known as the, the SOST now within the Special Operations Command, the Special Operations Surgical Team. They kind of started back right at 9-11 when we took those two teams. It's it funny because uh, they came over from Keesler Air Force Base and I was stationed at Harbor Field and they packed up an entire ISU full of their gear and their equipment and their personal stuff. And when we saw that, uh, we were like, oh, you guys would have to take that whole ISU and, and narrow that down to one quarter of the ISU. And they were kind of surprised and they're like, well, we can't narrow our stuff down, but we were able to scale a lot of the equipment down and, and a lot of the things that they had and, and able to, to get it packed appropriately. But it was, it was eye-opening because we, we were gone pretty quick. Let's say in about three weeks after the towers went down, maybe, maybe almost four, we were dropped off into a dark, old, abandoned Russian airfield that had nothing. Literally all we had is what we brought with us to include food, water, tents. It was definitely eye-opening. It changed my entire perception of 
of deployments and, and, and everything else. So when you first got to this Russian airfield, what were the priorities for you and your unit in getting the medical care established? So the first thing was, was, was really trying to find a, a forklift. There was only two forklifts that they had there unloading uh, these C-17s that, that were coming in. So trying to coordinate a forklift to, to get our items off and get everything set up and moved. Really, the first group was just three of us, uh, Doc Peters, Sergeant Frenchers, and myself that arrived. Uh, and we had a, a small clinic with us and a small tent that we were able to, to set up. Uh, a few chocks after us, we had our, our, large, our larger package coming with the rest of the people. So we were there for about four or five days before the other chock came in. And really our priority was to, to, to set up and, and start running clinic because we knew as, as bare bases start setting up, that's, that's a prime situation for people to get hurt and things to happen. And also we needed to be ready for any type of casualty evacuation, whether it was moving down range or, or, or moving people from there up to Turkey, to Inchilic or any other location. Our primary focus was to set up that healthcare delivery and, and that clinic and, and get our plans together on, on patient movement. So I'm imagining an airfield. And so that's, and obviously the Air Force wants to secure the airfield so that they can bring their supplies in and out of this newly established theater. Where was the medical setup in relationship to the actual airfield itself? Were you actually near the runway or were you off a, a bit of a distance? Yeah, we were, we, were, we were as close to the runway as possible because we knew if we needed to move patients, we, we didn't want to truck them too far or, or great distances. We didn't have any vehicles at the time, so we just had the manpower literally and maybe some, some rolling litters that we could use if needed until the rest of the gear got there. Uh, but we were as close to the runway as possible. I remember one night, once the entire package got there, we're, we're sitting there and we're actually sleeping where we were working because there was no, there was no sleeping tents, there was no reception, there was no dining hall, there was literally where MREs and bottled water, what we brought for the first couple of weeks. And as the C-17s were coming in, landing, bringing in supplies to build a base up, I'm not sure if one was a little bit off course, but it sounded pretty loud and it was pretty close to that tent because it had the tent flapping really good. I think it had us maybe second guess how close we were to the to the flat line, but it worked out while we were there. Do you remember any of the first patients that you encountered during that time? The first patient that really sticks into mind is, is as we started building up, we had 10th Mountain Division that rolled in to our location. And as they were setting up and building up their part of the camp, a young gentleman with his body armor on and, and full LBE and hell and everything was walking backwards and somehow he slipped on to on the ground and fell onto a pinnel hook. And the pinnel hook actually kind of went up his rectum. When they brought him in, he was laughing, everybody's kind of joking and, and cracking jokes about it. But when the surgical team kind of brought out the ultrasound, they noticed that he was bleeding on the inside. It bleeding pretty significantly and the, the tone changed real quick. They took him in the OR, they opened him up, and then they asked for blood. Well, the problem was we didn't have any blood. But we did have our walk-in donor kits that we had set up. So we actually had about six or seven O-negative members that we kind of literally had to run around and find because people were sleeping in all kinds of tents. It, some people brought tents, some people didn't. I mean, it, it looked like a refugee camp at first when we set this place up. One of the first individuals that donated a unit of blood was our medical logistician, Brian Hawkersmith. He, he couldn't take his blast off fast enough when, when they said that we needed blood. So... Did a human blood draw, buddy donor right there on the spot, got about six units. Within about 15 minutes, we had about 25 to 30 people lined up outside the tent ready to come in and draw blood. And it was literally 
draw the unit of blood and, t- and take it right into the OR and draw the next unit as needed. So they packaged them up and they were able to ligate the artery and the CCAT team flew them up to Intralic for further treatment. And I think from there he went on up to Ramstein. You said you had a couple interesting cases. Do you remember, was there another one that stands out to you from that deployment? Yeah. So uh, another interesting, I don't know if it necessarily say it was a case, but scenario was uh, we responded to the, the JDAM mass casualty on the 5th of December, where the JDAM dropped on top of the, uh, the team down there in the Kandahar area. They actually had me respond to that. It was, it was pretty quick. You know, I had my, my joint special operations, Eric Capone, surgeon, Dr. Peters come in and said, Steve, grab your ruck. You got to go. There's a 130 out the way in for you. I said, well, where am I going? And so they got, they got some injured, friendly fire, you, you need to go. Okay. So I, I get on the plane, get on 130. Another special forces team gets on with me as well too, which was a replacement team to, to infill for the team that was injured. And we flew for about two and a half, probably three hours to get to where we needed to go. We landed. There was another 130 that came from another location and had some medical capability on it as well. And then we just started receiving casualties. We saw the 53s landing and they're just bringing casualties to, to both planes. I had about seven or eight on my plane and the other plane had about five, five or six. Uh, the other plane had more of the serious casualties, but uh, we ended up taking those casualties to see Bomalan, which is probably about another two hour flight, if I remember correctly. I remember taking care of the, the ones that were on the plane. I had fractured femur, had uh, somebody that couldn't see blast injuries, flash injuries, some shrapnel wounds, a few things here or there, nothing too, too serious. But it was a day that I'll, I'll never forget because it really kind of brought to life all that training and all that schooling and and really all of the, the pressure that we would put on one another back in the unit to, to do better each and every time, because you just never know what scenario that you're going to be put into. I think one of the things that I was very impressed with, with Air Force Medicine was the well-oiled machine of air evacuation and places in Bagram and Balad. It was just amazing. But you're there early. This is before you really had a chance to set things up to have that well-oiled machine. Tell us about how you were planning to get patients out of the theater and what you were doing before in those early days of the war. And so our, our initial plan really was to go through one of the two locations that we had set up. So we went to our, our base and where we were at, and there's another group of us that went a little bit further south and southeast. And really, depending on the location where you were, we had evacuation plans to to shuttle patients up to Intralic for initial stabilization and then up to, to Longstool as needed. In the South, they went to, to Qatar and to, and to Sieve and Oman is the direction that they went. And we flew on all types of different missions. Uh, I, I remember flying on, the, on Army 47s with, with some of our Army counterpart medics, flew on Air Force missions with, uh, with our 130s, provided coverage for different missions uh, as they went down, as the team started infiltrating into uh, into Afghanistan deeper and deeper. So really we, those were kind of the initial plans that we had. And then we had an air vac unit stand up next to us there in our, in our base eventually. So we didn't necessarily have to take that final leg back to Intralic or, or to Longstool. Uh, they, they were able to move patients in a regulated format back to, uh, to those locations and we could push forward into, into theater as needed. So it really had been a while since the, the U.S. has been in contingency operation like Afghanistan and Iraq, what were some of the lessons learned over that period of time through your deployments through those theaters? 
I, I guess some of the big lessons learned was really be prepared for anything. Over the past 20 years, we've, we've been pretty lucky because we've been in a scenario where we've had air superiority and we could really move anybody we wanted to at ease and, and at will. But as, as you look into the future, I, I'm not sure if we're going to have that same opportunity or that same benefit. One of the things that I think benefited us was the training that we did with TCCC and even prolonged field care that within special operations, that community has been doing that since the 90s. Uh, and it was, it was basically in the culture of, of that community, whether in the Army, Navy, or the Air Force, but that special operations community understood that and they did that. And that was very beneficial in that time period as we set up that regulated patient movement and, and had the whole patients maybe a little bit longer than expected. I think the services now, whether it's the special operations community or the conventional community, really need to focus on that because it's proved hugely beneficial during that time period. And, and I think it would be beneficial moving forward as well. One of the things that we, we've all been interested in hearing about are some of these special operation community opportunities. And we really haven't had yet the opportunity to talk to Air Force PJs. What, what is their mission and, and how do you get involved in that? And what, what do PJs do? So, so PJs are, are rescue specialists. They're, they're combatants that also have medical skill. They're a very unique individual and a very unique skill set that the Air Force brings. They have them with an Air Force Special Operations Command. And they have them with Air Combat Command as well, too, for as rescue specialists. I respect PJs to the utmost, what, what they do. They are, uh, they are the door kickers of the Air Force as a whole, so to say. They're the ones on the ground. They're the ones that are in the fight. They're, they're the ones that are there, provide that initial stabilization, that care. It was PJs that went in initially to, to pick up a friendly fire incident on the 5th of December. They flew in on MH-53 to that location, picked them up, and, and flew them to a a more controlled location where our, our C-17s landed. We did a transload. But the PJs are our amazing, amazing asset that the Air Force has. And their training is demanding from everything that they do. I would think probably the, the most recognizable PJ that, that we have out there is our current SEAC. SEAC, Colón Lopez, has had some interesting stories as well in his time in Afghanistan and, and as a PJ. So one of your passions is training of those that are about to perform deployments or medical exercises, when you were preparing them for their first deployment and you had reflected back on the, these significant events you had, life-threatening bleeding, mass casualty events where you had to pick up these patients, what would you say was the one thing that you really wanted them to understand as they were getting ready to go out the door for their first deployment? The first thing I really wanted them to understand is to have confidence in themselves, to believe in their skill and really to be able to push themselves to be able to make decisions without having to look over your shoulder and ask a nurse or ask a doctor or ask somebody else there, hey, what do I do or how do I do this? If the chest tube needs to be put in, put the chest tube in. If, if you need a surgical cry, do a surgical cry. If, if you need to, to hang blood, hang blood, just obviously do all these things safely. So whenever I would, I would do training for some of our medics that would be going out or getting ready, I would push them. I would challenge them and, and sometimes they would give me a hard time because when we'd start our training, I would tell them to start running and they'd look at me like, say, what do you mean run? I was like, yeah, go outside and, and start running around the building. I, I'll let you know when we're ready. And I'd have them run until they're 
huffing and puffing, all geared up. And then I bring him in a nice dark room and, and put some mannequins down in some different scenarios and, and have him get to work. Because if they can, if they can work in those stressful environments in a training scenario and, and we could push them to their limits in training in the real world when something happens, they're better adapt to, to be able to handle that situation. But then I think what we sometimes forget is sometimes they, they're better adapt to handle the resiliency from that situation as well too. Cause you could train all day long. You can go to different schools. You can you can go to cadaver labs. You can do X, Y, and Z. But what you see on a battlefield is much different than what you will get in training. And the more you can push them and stress them, hopefully that'll help with some of that PTSD and, and some of what they will continue to see even when they come home after, after different missions and different scenarios. So the Air Force clearly saw your performance and experience and decided to put you in charge. You're the chief of the medical enlisted force for the Air Force Special Operations Command in 2014, based on some of the things that you had seen previously. And now you're in this important job advising the special operations community about medical issues. What were some of the priorities or specific challenges that you faced at that time? And what did you do about that? The priorities that we had were were in line with Special Operations Command, and really, I always call back to that number one priority. It's humans are more important than hardware. And I would always add to that, humans are more important than hardware, technology, or any, any reports. Because one of the issues that sometimes we run into is is trying to get our medics to, to get into the clinic to do some of the day-to-day type training. That may be a little bit boring. That, that's not the, the sexy trauma type training. It's just the, the seeing of patients. But that that seeing of patients is very important and is a baseline for what we do. You know, a lot of what we saw downrange, whether in, in Haiti or in Afghanistan or Iraq or pick up a spot in the world that we've been to, that disease non-battle injury or that day-to-day sick call is, is probably 80% of what you do and, and you have to be ready for that. So one of the challenges was sometimes getting the amount of time that our medics needed to do that, to maintain that skill set going moving forward through the day. The other opportunity that we had was was just trying to maintain our connectedness and our relevance with our, our sister services. And you know, as leadership changes, people change, thoughts change, but we were able to to continue to, to maintain that as far as with our army counterparts and, and our navy counterparts. But that was just something that needed to be to be worked both on the officer side and the enlisted side, working through the U.S. SOCOM's office. So you then became the chief of the medical enlisted force for the United States Forces Africa, and then the chief of the medical enlisted force for the Air Force. What were the significant initiatives and accomplishments in these roles and your greatest leadership challenge? Yeah, I was, I was blessed to, to hold those positions and to be put in those, those roles. And, and it's really because of the great people that were around me. A lot of challenges and different accomplishments. I would say one of the challenges that we had is that medical readiness training is how do we get our medics the training that they need? The majority of our medics that we have work in clinics and they check patients in and then they check them out and they may do a few minor skills, but how does that really translate to the wartime scenario that they need to be prepared for and need to be ready for? One of the initiatives that we kind of built on when I was in special operations was the medic rodeo. It initially started off as the EMT rodeo but it grew to become the medic rodeo. And what the medic rodeo is, 
It's a competition that's out at Cannon Air Force Base once a year. And it brings together teams from all over the Air Force. Usually we have about 20 teams that come together. Small teams of about five medics. And they would go through different uh, scenarios and exercises and uh, be graded. And, and they would come up with the, the trophy, first place, second place, third place. But one issue that we had was, is everybody that was going was, was really just the clinical medics. They were all ENTs. But as we look at our next fight and our future fight, we know that some of our non-clinical medics, maybe some of our medical service corps officers or our medical admin technicians, or maybe our medical logisticians, they may be put to the test. They may be asked to perform medical duties. So being in line with the Medic X initiative that came from my boss, General Hogg, during that time period, uh, we changed that program and made it the Medic Rodeo and mandated that one of the members of that five-person team was not a clinical IFSC or, or have a clinical job. And the excitement that that drew amongst the Air Force Medical Service, you, you'd be amazed. We had people that were practicing. We had people that were training. They were sending us videos. And they had people going to TCCC that were clinicians, which is exactly kind of what we wanted. We, we wanted to, to kind of drum that up. We actually had a wait list for teams that wanted to come to this event. Whereas before, we, we couldn't get enough people to come to this event. So that was probably one of the, the, the bigger overall initiatives that I was, I was glad to be a part of moving forward. And hopefully that, that continues on and they continue to build on it because I, I think that'll help build the future medic that they need for tomorrow's fight. So you've flown on 11 different aircraft. Which would you say is your favorite and which was the most challenging for you to deliver medical care? I would say hands down my favorite was the MH-53. I love flying on, on the old 53. Fun to fly on, fun to provide care on. You definitely got to cover with hydraulic fluid and, and other, other, other oils and greases as you worked in there. The old saying was when you flew with somebody for the first time and they were like, hey, it's, it's, there's, there's fuel dripping or there's something dripping on me. And like, that's it's a good thing. You need to worry when it stops because that means it's out. So if you're dripping, it's, it's all right. But the 53 was my favorite. I love moving patients. I love flying patients on that. I love the power that it, that it had. The one that was the most challenging were some of the, the smaller aircraft, you know, some of the Lears or the, the propellers, the King Airs, because uh, those are tight to get a, a gurney in there and a, and a patient and trying to do work on them. But uh, hands down, my favorite was the, the MH-53. So we undoubtedly have some listeners that may not understand what the MH-53 is. Can you explain the aircraft to us? It kind of looks like the Navy Sea Stallion. It's a large aircraft. It has a rear ramp, it's a one side door. It sometimes got weapons mounted in the doors and a big 50 cal on the tail. It has fuel pods that are on the sides. It's a large aircraft. They were primarily flown in Milner Hall and Herbert Field. They've since been retired. You know, the CV-22 has kind of taken its place within the Air Force inventory. The Navy still has them. It is, I think there are the Sea Stallions or HH-53s that they have there. But it's, it's an amazing aircraft. I thoroughly love them. They have them in the air park at Herbert Field. They have one at the air park at Maxwell Air Force Base. They have one at the air park in Cannon Air Force Base as well, too. Actually, if I remember correctly, it was the first aircraft that went into Iraq during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, escorting either Apaches or Cobras in to, to take out some of the, the radar that, that were there bordering on, on Iraq. So you've had multiple deployments and lots of experience. Is there any particular clinical case that comes to mind over your 
distinguished career that you'd say, boy, that was a very memorable case. And if that's the case, can you describe that? I guess one of the ones that really sticks to me is one that, that taught me a lesson for the most part, not necessarily from a clinical standpoint, but just from a personal standpoint. When early on in Iraq, we were far forward deployed even before the war started, about 80 miles northwest of, of Iraq, providing medical support for different operations that were going on in, in the area. And we had some of our security team get into an accident and flipped over a Humvee. And there was a guy that was in the turret when the, the Humvee flipped over. We worked on him for a little bit. He unfortunately didn't survive. But there was a guy that was in the back seat that was unrestrained, that was pretty badly uh, injured. Stabilized him and, and brought him back to our tent where our surgical team was. Surgical team asked for, for blood, which we had blood on site. And it was my job to, to manage this blood. But when I went to get the blood, it was expired by a day. I couldn't figure out why. I had no way of checking it pretty regular. But it was expired. And I went through all the blood, and all, all the blood was, was expired by a day. I let the surgeon know. The surgeon was where? He, he said, fine, we'll, we'll still use the blood. We'll take a chance. Everything worked out for the patient. But right away, I, notif I notified my GISOAC surgeon. And, and let her know at the time it was Captain Lee Swanson and let her know what happened, let her know the uh, control numbers on the units of blood and everything that were given. And rather than her really hem me up and get in trouble, she just asked me to put together a policy, a blood policy and, and a guideline because we really didn't have one at, at the time. And so I did, I did a lot of homework and we put something together uh, and really that that blood policy that we kind of put together was was utilized in theater as the theater continued to grow. They just they just added to it and built it. But what I realized from that is that some people could have you know yelled and screamed and and pulled me out and really put it to me. But that wasn't her her method. She understood that I had made a mistake and it was an opportunity for me to learn about myself and, and how to fix this. So I learned a lot from that scenario from that episode. And Dr. Swanson now is Brigadier General Select, so it's, it's clear that her, her leadership qualities have continued as she's developed others across the Air Force Medical Service. So, so that, that was, for me, a, a real learning and turning point in a, in a clinical case that was a learning point for me where I really kind of swallowed my pride and, and learned a lot about myself and, and learned a lot about leadership growing up there. What would you say is your most memorable deployment story? Most memorable deployment story. Yeah, there's, there's, been a, there's been a lot of different deployments. I would say probably when we went to, to Haiti was, was quite interesting. I, I remember after the earthquake in February or January of 2010, and we deployed down to Haiti with their combat controllers and pararescue and, and started moving patients. And what was interesting with that entire scenario is the news reporting. I've never seen so many newscasters and news reporters in one location. I was, I was working the medical operations desk and, and literally I'm sitting there and, and Katie Couric walks up to me and says, who do I talk to about getting the ride home? And I'm like, well, how did you get down here? Because you only had military aircraft kind of, kind of coming in and out. But we did a lot of movement of patients in, in Haiti. And the way that was set up that from a humanitarian standpoint, to me, that was, that was most memorable. One of the patients that we moved was actually a newscaster who, during one of the aftershocks that we had down in Haiti, 
was so worried about his life and his safety that he jumped out of his two-story hotel window downtown. Well, the hotel didn't collapse, but he broke his pelvis and both femurs and, and his lower back. And, and we had to kind of jump through some hoops to, uh, to get him moved up to, to Miami to get treatment. And I think that was probably some of the, the most interesting cases that we had was coming out of Haiti for that three-week time period while we were down there. It was, it was definitely different, that's for sure. What advice would you give to young Air Force airmen looking to make a career in military medicine on a way to make their pathway more successful? Because you've had a very successful career. You were NCO of the year in several commands, distinguished graduate at the NCO Academy. So you've walked the walk. What do you tell those young airmen of how to, how to set themselves up for success? I've often had individuals come to me and, and ask me, hey, hey, chief, what, what's the next job that I should get to, to help me get promoted? Or what's the next opportunity or, or, or location that I, I need to seek out as far as to, to be promoted? And I always tell them, don't seek out a place to get promoted or, or don't seek out a job that's going to get you promoted, but seek out an opportunity, an opportunity where you find yourself where you can grow an opportunity where you can make a difference in somebody else's life in a place where you can make the organization better. I think if you do that, then the rest kind of falls into place. But way too often I hear people just looking to, where, where can I go next to get promoted? Where can I do this to get promoted? Don't, don't worry about that. that that's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's okay too. But the most important thing is, is to be able to create opportunities for others where you can make a difference in that organization. It doesn't matter. If it's a, a small clinic, a pediatric clinic, or if it's in a match comms office, or if the headquarters or staff office, any place you can make a difference is where you're going to be best suited. And, and that's the, the best thing for yourself and for that organization. What was the most important leadership lesson you learned that you wish you had known earlier in your career? Best leadership lesson that I learned really was to have confidence in myself. Early on, I, I didn't have much confidence and I didn't have the courage to ask for help. But, but I realized that midway through a few deployments that couldn't do it all on my own. I, I couldn't figure things out and I, I needed help. So having that courage to, to ask for that help slowly built that confidence that kind of helped me through different scenarios and different situations as I went through my military career. So the two of you have over 30 years of military service, yet I do not. And so what do you think is the most remarkable change that you noticed in Air Force medicine over your 30 plus year career? I think that over my time period in the Air Force Medical Service, the type of medics that have been coming in has, has drastically changed. The medics that are coming into the Air Force Medical Service now, they're sharp. They're a different breed than when, than when we came in. It was, we were just kind of like big packs coming in and learning and doing things. But these, these young, as one of my good friends used to call them, young Thundercats that are, that are coming into the service, they, they are smart and they have a mind of their own and, and they need to be heard because sometimes they have the answers to a lot of the problems that we've been trying to, to figure out solutions for. Maybe a, a per perfect example, three that really stick out in, in my mind and 
at some, the three that I met that were at the Route 97, Route 91 concert in Las Vegas in 2017 when they had that mass shooting. There was three young young medics that were from Nellis Air Force Base, and they were just there to, to, to watch a concert, have, have a good time. One was actually on the stage when the shooting took place. But once the, the shot started firing, they took charge. They sent up triage points. They were moving patients. They were ducking for cover. They were pulling patients undercover. I mean, one even rode in the trunk of the car to the local trauma center, maintaining pressure on the individual. But they didn't have no special training. They didn't have TCCC. They didn't have any of that type of stuff. It was just the great in- intuition of these young airmen to do the right thing and step up and, and take care of patients. And I think that's the, the biggest advantage and what I see that's much different now than before is the amazing men and women that are coming into our service. I think we're in good hands, but we just have to listen to them, listen to them conserve the future. When the history books are written, what would you want people to remember about your legacy in military medicine? I've never been big about legacies or anybody remember me. I think when people, people retire and move on, they give you your ceremony or your plaque kind of kick you out the door and there's new new people that take over the job. But if anything, I, I guess I would just hope that, that I was able to, to give somebody belief in themselves uh, and I was able to create an environment for young medics, young airmen, and their families to, to thrive so that they could be set up for success. So that's what I would hope for. But uh, legacies, uh, legacies are like Superman, Spider-Man, but I'm just another old medic that, that's come through the Air Force just like those, those before me. Just try to keep the torch burning and, and pass it to others as, as they come before, after us, and, and continue to do great things. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Steve Cum on Wardock's podcast. Chief, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Oh, thank you for this amazing opportunity. Thank you for what you, you do each and every day. Wardock's makes a difference. Trust me, there's a lot of medics uh, that, that listen to this active and, and retired, such as myself. So we appreciate what you do and, and what you put out. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.